Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Loose Ends, The Singh Family Tragedy has been created specifically for adult audiences. Listener discretion is advised. There is graphic depiction of violence and murder, frank portrayal of sexuality, and at times excessive language. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. This is Episode 9, The Petition. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you for listening. I have previously mentioned that Max Seeker had submitted a petition to the Queensland Government for a full pardon for his convictions, but until now I have not provided many details of that petition. Before I get into the why, perhaps I should do the how. In 2013, through his solicitors, Max Seeker appealed against both his conviction and sentence to the Queensland Court of Appeal. For those with no exposure to this aspect of the court process, The Court of Appeal is comprised of three Supreme Court judges. The verdict of the court can be a majority, if necessary. The appeal was heard in May 2013, and the court delivered its findings on 2 September 2013. The appeal was dismissed. That leaves the only avenues open to the convicted party, Maxika, to apply to the High Court, or to apply to the Queensland Governor. He chose the latter. So why haven't I mentioned it before now? Basically, there were so many other matters to deal with. And generally, there is a lot of legalese involved, which tends to send some listeners to sleep. The legalese aside, previously unknown evidence identified in the appeal is both compelling and disturbing. More loose ends. More questions rather than answers. In 2018, retired solicitor Jeff Johnson was approached by the Seeker family and agreed to review the evidence in the Max Seeker trial. He had not previously been involved in the case and knew little regarding the details other than what he had read in the media. He did not know any members of the Seeker family prior to his involvement. As a result of that review, Mr Johnson was sufficiently concerned with the Crown evidence 
to agree to prepare a petition for pardon. He is working pro bono on the case. For those not familiar with the term, he is doing it for free. Applications in that petition are still before the court, so Mr Johnson declined to be interviewed or publicly comment on the matter. But I can. Hopefully one day, when the proceedings are finished, I can interview Jeff Johnson and get his take on the case. Jeff Johnson was provided with all the material regarding the case, essentially the same mountain of paperwork I received. After reviewing the material, Mr Johnson prepared an application for a petition which ran to over 90 pages. He later prepared two supplementary affidavits which covered a further 34 pages. Additionally, the petition also incorporated 83 exhibits that were referred to in those affidavits. The petition was delivered to the Queensland Governor on 11 April 2019. The Governor traditionally refers any applications to the Attorney-General and there is an expectation the matter will be referred to the Queensland Court of Appeal for review. The petition focused on a number of areas of concern that Mr Johnson identified as well as new evidence he found. Specifically, Jeff Johnson engaged the services of a specialist forensic pathologist from New South Wales named Professor Johan Duflau. The professor reviewed the autopsy material of all three Singh children and concluded time of death was likely between 12 hours and 24 hours from time of discovery. You may recall the pathologist who conducted the postmortems put time of death somewhere between 4 hours and 2 days with police finally settling on time of death around the 36 to 42 hour mark, a significant difference in findings between the two pathologists. If Professor de Flau is correct in his assessment, this is a huge problem for the police case. As well as that, the professor challenged that Neilman died from strangulation. He suggested death may have been caused by blunt force trauma to the head or drowning. More questions, not answers. In the petition, Johnson also addressed the deliberate lies alleged to have been told by Max Seeker, which constituted an integral part of the Crown case. Those alleged lies were that Max Seeker said he was at home all night on the Easter Sunday night and that he arrived at the Singh House around 2.20pm on the Tuesday afternoon. In addressing these issues in the petition, Mr Johnson referred to the many witnesses called and not called with information regarding those lies. Johnson referred to witnesses not called including Lisa L and Milena P. Both witnesses made claims which were very detrimental to the Crown case. As I addressed both of these matters in some detail during the podcast, I do not propose to go into detail again here. Jeff Johnson also raised the problems regarding evidence gathering and CCTV in the petition. This was an area I did not cover in the podcast. Mr Johnson pointed out two main areas of concern. Investigators gave evidence at trial and in the committal proceedings that it was many months before they considered Max Seeker a suspect, perhaps 18 months. One investigator strongly refuted the suggestion that by the very first interview, Max Seeker was a suspect for the murders. 
rather than a person of interest. Johnson referred to written material on 25 April 2003, three days after the murder, that showed Max Seeker was the only suspect. He concluded this affected the ability of police investigators to conduct a fair investigation. You may recall I found reference to Max Seeker being a suspect within eight hours of him finding the bodies. You will recall Max Seeker and others told police he dropped his sister at Stafford City Shopping Centre at about 2.10pm on Tuesday 22 April 2003. Police allege he arrived at the murder scene around 2pm and could not have been at the shopping centre at 2.10pm. They said Seeker's sister was lying when she claimed Max picked her up and dropped her off. During the murder investigation, police were dispatched to Stafford City Shopping Centre to find CCTV from 2.15pm onwards. None was found. Further, it was claimed in evidence that the centre did not have CCTV coverage in place in 2003. Johnson challenged this after conducting his own inquiries and provided evidence in the affidavit that CCTV was in existence in 2003 in the area Maxika dropped his sister off. Johnson added the point that had CCTV been located, it would not have shown Maxika arriving, as he and others stated they arrived at the centre at 2.10pm. That matter was never addressed by Defence Counsel at the trial. Johnson claimed that if police had done their job properly, this evidence supporting the defence position would have been found. He claimed this would have corroborated Maxika being at the centre around 2.10pm and then arriving at the house around 2.20pm. Mr Johnson also addressed the matter of Andrea B and jury tampering. In the petition, Jeff Johnson described Andrea B as being delusional and lacking credibility. Mr Johnson detailed in the petition the lack of blood, DNA, fingerprints or other physical evidence from the crime scene being found on Max Seeker in his vehicles or in his house. As you may recall, it was a concern of mine that no such evidence connecting Max Seeker to the murders could be located. Finally, Mr Johnson addressed the actions of Max Seeker's defence barrister under the heading Flagrant Incompetence of Defence Counsel. He spent some time addressing mistakes made by Defence Counsel Sam DiCarlo. Because of all these issues, Jeff Johnson put in his affidavit that the conviction of Max Seeker was unsafe and petitioned the Governor to give Seeker a pardon. In a supplementary affidavit, Mr Johnson questioned the accuracy and veracity of evidence of one of the senior crime scene officers at the crime scene. Jeff Johnson pointed to irregularities in evidence. In one instance, the senior forensic officer gave evidence that he signed out of the crime scene at 12 midday on 29 April 2003, examined a mobile phone, made inquiries with the owner of the mobile phone, and took a photograph of the phone screen with the date and time displayed. At that time, he called the Telstra talking clock and obtained the exact time for comparison with the time shown on the screen. The officer stated this occurred at 12.19pm on 29 April 2003. The date on the photograph was blurred. 
The photograph of the mobile phone was not tendered during evidence. The officer gave evidence at trial of the significance of the date and time displayed on the mobile phone and how it supported their claims Max Seeker was lying and was the killer. When Johnson had the photograph enhanced, it showed the date displayed on the phone as actually being 28 April 2003, the day before. Mr Johnson examined the crime scene log for 28 April and the scientific officer left the crime scene at 12 midday and returned to the crime scene at 12.05pm. When Mr Johnson examined the crime scene log for 29 April, there were no entries whereby that officer exited and returned to the crime scene at all, other than early morning and late afternoon. None of these matters were taken up with the officer in cross-examination by Defence Counsel. It is important to put that issue into perspective. Police investigators around the world pride themselves on their crime scene integrity. Queensland police are no different. Everyone would have seen movies where investigators walk under the crime scene tape, provide their details to an officer nearby and enter the crime scene usually covered head-to-toe in protective equipment. That evidence is usually accepted as bulletproof, unassailable, indisputable. So what is the significance of the wrong date and time being recorded in the crime scene job log and being given in evidence? It does not mean the investigator did not conduct the inquiries he claimed in evidence that he did not photograph the mobile phone. It does not disprove the evidence, but just gives one cause to wonder. Did he leave the crime scene on the 29th and he was not signed out or in? Or did he actually do it on the 28th in the five-minute window recorded in the log? To be honest, I think it would have taken more than five minutes to speak to the owner of the phone, examine the phone, photograph it and call Telstra at 12.19pm as he claimed. And why did the officer give evidence that it happened on the 29th? And you wonder what impact, if any, this evidence had on the trial outcome. So what do you do with this newfound information? For me, I tuck it away in my mind for future reference. To reconcile it with the case in general, and other matters. But what happens when you find a problem with another piece of evidence? And another. It doesn't mean the investigators were wrong or made mistakes, but you want to look closer. You want to make sure that the evidence is accurate. That it is not a house of cards. And if the matter is a circumstantial case, you look closer still. You pause and ask, is the evidence accurate? Not just this evidence, but other aspects of the Crown case. And you will recall I have previously discussed loose ends in the Crown case. A lot of loose ends. Which brings me to a more significant and concerning discrepancy in the Crown case identified and highlighted by Jeff Johnson perhaps one of the most important pieces of evidence given at trial. 
Some would say this evidence, together with the lies allegedly told by Max Seeker, ensured his conviction by the jury. The more I ponder on this matter, the more I consider it to be concerning. And the implications of the test results are stunning. The same senior forensic officer above was also involved in this aspect of the investigation. You may recall that during the podcast, I briefly touched on blackened impressions on the internal stairs from the ground floor to the first floor. Examination of the crime scene by scientific officers located a foot impression on carpet at the bottom of the stairs and a number of partial foot impressions on the internal stairs. These impressions were a lighter colour than of the beige carpet. The impressions were consistent with feet that carried bleach from a tiled area that had been mopped. The first impression was complete and had the greatest clarity and detail of the impressions that were found. The other impressions going up the stairs were of decreasing quality and had decreasing concentrations of bleach. The evidence linked the impressions to the killer, who had mopped the tiled area with bleach. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. The impressions were on carpet and therefore lacked ridge detail to enable a fingerprint type analysis. However, class characteristics including size, shape and position were able to be observed and compared with samples from Max Seeker and other persons of interest. Once they had turned black, as you will hear shortly. Police case was that Seeker had stood in bleach on the ground floor of the house whilst wearing socks, possibly whilst pouring bleach over Neilma's neck after he strangled her. You may recall I believed a more likely scenario was the offender, Max, cleaning up blood on a tile on the ground floor of the house with bleach to destroy DNA and possible blood the killer's blood, from an injury. The Crown alleged Seeker then walked up the stairs, obeying the house rules of not wearing shoes on carpet. In doing so, there was transference of bleach from the socks onto the carpet. Perhaps one part of Lockhart's principle of exchange theory. The carpet square with the bleached impression was cut out and removed for further scientific analysis. 
In the days following the finding of the bodies, police covered the stairs with newspaper and overlaid that with plastic before fingerprinting of the interior of the house commenced, apparently to protect the carpet. To be honest, I was surprised by this. Actually, very surprised. The carpet upstairs was not covered in any of the rooms. The carpets were bloodstained, bleach-stained, waterlogged. It would have been patently obvious to all the carpet would have to be replaced. All the upstairs carpeted area, as well as the stairs, certainly. To cover one small area of carpet to protect it seemed bizarre to me. But there it is. But if that was bizarre, I am really curious with what happened next. Fingerprinting of the entire inside of the house was then undertaken. The stairs remained covered by the paper and plastic for around six days. After that time, the plastic and paper were removed. A large number of police were present when that occurred. Police found that blackened impressions were now visible on the carpeted stairs. The crown case was that fingerprint powder floating around in the air above found its way under paper and plastic covering the stairs and the powder attached itself to the carpet where there were dried bleach crystals. These nine blackened impressions on the carpet, police said, were caused by socked feet soaked in bleach to which fingerprint powder attached itself. The impressions were now clearly visible. Two witnesses gave evidence, one of them a retired Canadian Mountie, the other a doctor with a PhD in podiatry. The evidence related to the comparison of the foot impressions recovered from the crime scene with foot impressions taken from Max Seeker in bare feet, three types of sock, and by the use of ink and bleach on his feet on different occasions. Based on their experience, both witnesses were unable to exclude Maxika as having left the impressions on the carpet. It is important to clarify that. The witnesses were not purporting to provide a positive identification of Maxika as making the impressions, because there were no unique or identifying characteristics but they both formed the opinion the impressions could have been made by Max Seeker or someone with matching features. Jeff Johnson wanted to test this evidence. To assure himself it was accurate, he had questions. Perhaps he was even suspicious. Specifically, he wondered about fingerprint powder finding its way under plastic and paper laying on carpet and attaching itself only to those areas where bleach crystals were to be found. Jeff Johnson engaged a research team from Bonn University on Queensland's Gold Coast. Johnson provided the research team with photographs of the footprints taken at the crime scene, a roll of carpet, a bottle of bleach, a container of black fingerprint powder and a pair of boots. He asked the team to conduct tests on the carpet with bleach and fingerprint powder. Specifically, he wanted them to replicate the conditions in the crime scene. When you think about it, 
it was not an exacting scientific test. Really, I think anyone could conduct a similar test. But Jeff Johnson wanted a team with scientific expertise involved. The team utilised a room at the university for their testing, which they kept locked and secured when not in use. In summary, the results obtained from the tests conducted were No discernible footprint appeared during or up to eight days after a socked or booted foot was placed in a bucket of concentrated bleach or coated with massage oil and then applied by stepping on the carpet. When strip three of the carpet was covered with newspaper and plastic sheeting and fingerprint powder distributed in the air, no discernible footprints appeared. Strip 2 was left uncovered and exposed to the fingerprint powder, disseminated by air, and no footprints appeared. That is, no fingerprint powder accumulated on the area where the bleached sock or boot had been applied. No discernible footprints appeared. When the carpet was directly exposed to fingerprint powder, and then a bleached or oiled sock or boot used to step on the carpet, discernible prints appeared. Let me repeat that. Discernible prints appeared after bleached socks stepped on carpet already covered in fingerprint powder. The report concluded the prints depicted as having appeared after fingerprint powder was applied directly to the carpet were not dissimilar to the blackened prints depicted in the crime scene photos. More importantly, the only appearance of discernible prints occurred after socked or booted feet were applied by stepping onto strip two of the carpet after that strip had been directly exposed to fingerprint powder. The report included the belief by the Bond University team that the impressions were made by more than one foot. By itself, the results of the testing conducted by the Bond University research team raised serious concerns. Further, the results are supportive of the evidence given by one of the police scientific officers when he said, You can't get an impression without something being there, so something does have to be there for an impression to develop. Johnson wrote in his affidavit that this would suggest that the footprints that appeared on the 28 April 2003, six days after the murders were found, are more likely to have appeared as a result of a person or persons unknown having stepped on the carpet after fingerprint powder had been applied in areas of the crime scene. Fingerprint powder was not introduced to the crime scene until either 24 or 26 April 2003. In essence, the research team found the fingerprint powder had to be there before the bleach was put on the carpet, in reverse order to what the police found. How does that happen? More questions rather than answers more loose ends. As I said, I find these results and the implications stunning. 
I am the first one to say that when the evidence about Joe Cool from the Solomon Islands came to light, I was intrigued. And when I read the evidence of the witnesses who could say Max Seeker was home on the Sunday night but did not give evidence, I was concerned. And when I analysed the various witnesses around Grass Tree Close who heard and saw things on the Monday and Tuesday, I was disturbed. How significant was the footprint evidence to the jury in their deliberations? We will never know. If the challenge to the evidence of the stair impressions was known before trial, I believe it would have been unlikely that evidence would have been allowed by the judge to be given. In the Court of Appeal hearing in 2013, Seeker's barrister had this to say. The appellant, Seeker, submits that the evidence is of low probative value, but its prejudicial value was significant because a. the jury was likely to be impressed by the qualifications and experience of the experts and place more weight on their evidence than it deserved, the so-called white coat effect, and b. the way in which the expert evidence was framed, namely as an inability to exclude Maxika, was said to be likely to leave the jury with the impression that it placed Maxika at the crime scene at the relevant time. I suspect the same would have been true about the alleged lies Maxika told if the evidence of Melena P or Lisa L was known. As I have said, some people believe the footprint evidence and the alleged lies told by Maxika were enough to secure a conviction. It is significant that in his summing up to the jury, the Crown Prosecutor devoted more than 12 pages to the claim that Max Seeker told lies. Obviously, for the prosecutor anyway, the lies were a big deal. And so they should be. Max Seeker deliberately lying and saying he was somewhere when he was not is strong evidence of guilt. If in fact he lied. As I said, this was a circumstantial case, and the more links you have, the stronger the chain. I have previously questioned the number of links in the chain during the podcast, and based on the findings by Bonn University, there appears to be a problem with yet another link in the Crown chain. So what happened to the petition for a pardon delivered to the Governor in 2019? As is customary, the Governor referred the petition to the Queensland Attorney-General. In November 2020, Jeff Johnson received advice that the Governor would not grant a pardon and the Attorney-General would not refer the matter to the Court of Appeal. As far as the Crown was concerned, the matter was finished. Max Seeker could get back to serving his prison sentence. The Attorney-General's decision enabled Jeff Johnson to apply to the Supreme Court to have the Attorney-General's decision judicially reviewed. In response, the Crown filed an application to strike out Jeff Johnson's application. 
The Crown application was heard by the Queensland Supreme Court in 2021, and as at November 2021, the judgment on that application is yet to be handed down. There are several possible outcomes from Jeff Johnson's application and the Crown's counter-application. Rather than speculate on the outcomes, I will report on the outcome of the appeal process as it becomes known. But rest assured, this matter will be tied up in the courts for some time to come, possibly years. The matter could possibly end up in the High Court of Australia. I mention here that I first met Jeff Johnson in February 2020. Before initially speaking with him by telephone in December 2019, I had not heard his name, which makes this more remarkable. In Mr Johnson's application for a judicial review of the Attorney-General's refusal to refer the petition to the Court of Appeal, I understand Johnson referred to the Stafford case, the murder of Leanne Holland, which was referred to the Court of Appeal not once, but twice. In his affidavit, Mr Johnson submitted the evidence that was dismissed by the Attorney-General in the Seeker case as not justifying referral was, on its face, stronger than the Stafford case. As you may be aware, Graham Stafford's conviction for murder was quashed in 2009 and a retrial ordered, which the Crown declined to prosecute. As soon as further information comes to light regarding the court proceedings, I will broadcast another episode. In the interim, I will continue to review the evidence in the case. Thank you for listening to this episode of Loose Ends. Please rate and review the podcast. If you like it, recommend it to others. If you have questions, information or feedback, you can contact me via the following. The Facebook page is Loose Ends. Sing Family Tragedy. My email address is looseends2003 at outlook.com. This podcast was made possible with the grateful assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Appreciation of Bad Bassam for editing, mixing, and mastering the episode. Music Before I Go by RKVC. You will find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks again for listening.